connecting with hearts tonight. Uh, we will more connect with minds. I want to. One of the things that that Dave said in, in the welcome as we were kind of kicking things off tonight was that this is the the most important day of history and it changes life so much. So um, that's the truth. And so I, I want to spend some time uh, examining some physical evidence, examining some spiritual evidence to connect our lives and connect our, our minds with um, with proofs that the resurrection actually occurred. So uh, we're, I'm going to go quickly so we can get to our our family activities or anything else that's going on. So, but I want to look quickly at, at seven uh, proofs of the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, and the uh, they're they're all in, in your bulletin. The, the bulletin is a little bit uh, more. There, you notice usually there's half of the pages announcements and half of the pages thoughts for the day. Uh, but today they're all uh, all seven of the points are there and, and a little bit of the the meat behind each one of the, the points is there as well. So this is this is something to to intellectually connect our, our minds with, but at the same time uh, lend some some strength to, to our beliefs and, and build some and put some some stronger foundation in what we believe as we connect with some some physical evidence and connect with some circumstantial evidence that, that proves that the resurrection actually happened. Some uh, you might want to jot some notes down for Maybe one of these points really, really jump into your mind and really connect your mind with it. Um, these are, are useful when we're having discussions or whatnot with, with someone who might happen to not believe it. So, the, the first one there, his, his supporters did not go away. Um, that's a proof that the resurrection happened because the supporters of Christ, the ones that were closest to him, in particular the, the twelve disciples and then those that were around them, they did not Go away. Mark Driscoll in his book, Vintage Jesus, says this, they, meaning the disciples, did not give up hope that there was truly a Messiah, nor did they walk away from their commitment to Jesus in search of another Messiah following his death. And I want to, I want to stop before I read the rest of that quote and, uh, connect our minds politically with, with what's happening in this age. There are several re- people groups in They're there, and so uh, one of those groups is the Jews, the people of Israel. Another one of those, the Idumeans, the the core of the Idumeans is a Roman Roman appointed leader that is called Herod. You've heard of Herod in these days, and in these days, reading the story, he was one of the ones who had a trial before Jesus and all that. Herod was an Idumean person of Idumean descent, and the Romans chose from the Idumeans one man to be Herod. And the Herod would be the one who would rule the Idumeans and also the Jews. So, basically, the Jews are being ruled by someone who is an Idumean, who is not one of them, who doesn't appreciate who they are and, and whatever. And it's a, it's a very oppressive rule. And so, the Idumeans are on top of oppression, being oppressed by them as well. They're being told what to do, where to go, who they can... Uh, their, what laws they can run, what they can't. Very similar to us in, uh, around the, the birth of our country when we were being ruled by the people of England. Very similar situation. So, the Jews are ruled by a people group that's close to them and a people group that's far from them, but they're both being ruled and oppressed. So, all these people, the, these Jews, all their lives are taught throughout the whole Old Testament as, as the Old Testament is pointing to a Savior, pointing to a Messiah. 
and you've probably heard it said before, that the people are looking for a military Messiah. Their hero, of all the heroes in the Old Testament, for the Jews around this time, David is the main hero. And he's the main hero because he was the one who, who brought Israel, who brought the Jews to strength and power. And nobody messed with the Jews when David was in power, when David was, was the king. And now David is gone, and so they're looking for another Messiah. And when we hear the word Messiah, our mind immediately thinks of religion. The Jews, when they see and, and speak the word Messiah, they're talking about somebody who's going to save them from this oppression that the Idumeans had and the, and the Romans had over their lives. And so the Jews are looking for this big, strong, studly, military the political stuff of the day. So that's what they're looking for when we see this word Messiah. We weren't, they were looking for this strong person to come and save them. Then, painful best. So basically, the world is seeing that there is there's a dead Messiah, the one that had been self-said, I am the Messiah, and the one that John the Baptist and others had said, this one is the Messiah. This is the one that's come to, to change you. The, the supporters did not go away. And the only way for them to not go away is if the truth that Christ had been teaching all along had failed. Unless the, If this truth fails, then the disciples are going to go away and we're not going to hear from them again and they're not going to be important historical figures. However, each one of the disciples, with the exception of John, died a death of martyrdom. So, all these guys who were intimately involved in the life of Christ were willing to give themselves up for Christ. So, in order for that to have happened, they must have seen a resurrected Jesus Christ. So, the fact that his supporters did not go away is a proof, a circumstantial proof that... Uh, that Jesus did in fact resurrect. The second one that I want to deal with is the life of James. Um, sometimes when you're studying Scripture, when you're studying the Word, uh, these two people get confused. There's two Jameses that are talked about in Scripture. One, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, one of the three guys that was the closest to Jesus. Jesus had, had his twelve disciples, but from within the twelve, he had three really close ones, Peter, James, and John. James is that guy. This is not that James. James has is also Jesus' brother. Jesus had two brothers, one James and one Jew. They both have, Bible, they have books of the Bible that, are, that they wrote and they have their name. So, this is the James that we're talking about. Not the James that, that was present in the, at the Garden of Gethsemane, not the James that followed Christ around, but the James that was his brother. John chapter 7, verse 5 says this about not just James, but also Jude. For not even his brothers believed him. Not even his brothers believed him. This is John 7, early on. In the middle of the ministry of Jesus, his brothers didn't believe that he was the Messiah. Didn't believe he was the Son of God that he was proclaiming to be. So, it's very simple. They don't believe who Jesus said he was. Then, fast forward, after the death of Christ, James becomes the pastor, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now, hugely important to get the, the, the of that. Jerusalem is where all of the important religious activity that's happening in this culture, in this age, around 30 to 50 A.D., the most important stuff that's happening in terms of Christianity, the most important stuff that's happening in terms of Judaism, are happening in Jerusalem. James, the one who John says didn't believe Jesus, 
now is the pastor of the most important, most influential, biggest church in the world. James is its pastor. What happened in the life of James to change his mind from being an unbeliever to being a believer? The answer has to be he saw a dead Jesus Christ and he saw a resurrected Jesus Christ. The life of James tells the story. And also, James, not one of the twelve, not one of the, the ten of, of, of the guys who, who were martyred, he was just a follower of Jesus afterwards. He was also martyred for uh, for the death. And that's uh, his story is in Acts um, chapter 12, or chapter 15, verses 13 to 20, if you want to turn there. But basically, another one of the Herods that rose up in power uh, killed James by the sword after he was a pastor of Jerusalem and after he wrote the book of James. So two guys, James and Jude, both become uh, leaders in the the Christian the Christianity in the age. Uh, point number three, the life of Peter. This is uh, this is probably in, in my head the, the, the most important one and, and the strongest circumstantial proof of the life of Christ. Uh, verse, or looking at Acts chapter four, verses seven through ten. This is the same guy in these verses who just a few weeks and when when the first four chapters of Acts happen, this is probably uh, four to five weeks after the death and resurrection of Christ. So we're talking like a month after Christ died and resurrected, these events happen. And if you remember what happened on Friday night, of um, on Good Friday, Peter was confronted three times by people who said, you knew that guy, don't you? You know Jesus. And, and each of the three times, he denies Christ. And one of those three times is to a 10 or 11 year old girl. So Peter is so scared and so cowardly that he can't even confirm that he knows Jesus to a The same guy, among this stuff happens. And when it set them in the midst, they inquired by what power or by what name did you do this? What they're talking about there, what happened previously to what we're seeing here, is they had healed a crippled man outside of uh, some gates to a temple. They had the guy looked up and said, and said, can I have some money? And Peter said, I don't have any money to give to you, but what I do give you, I stand up and walk. By the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk, and this guy walks. And so Jesus got, or Peter got into a lot of trouble for doing that in the name of Jesus. And so they, these leaders know that, that he did it in the name of Jesus, so they want to bring him in and ask him, what in the world are you doing? We just killed this guy, and now here you are, preaching and speaking in his name. Keep going. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, stop there and go back. He said to them, the rulers, the people and elders. These are the very same people. This is the Sanhedrin. These are the ones who gathered around and ruled the, the Israelites. And they actually had to answer to Herod, so, but they had rules and, and rights of their own. And they came together, the same guys that sentenced Jesus to death are the same guys that Peter is talking to here. You follow that? They're the ones who have the potential to get authority to kill Peter. But boldly, Peter says this, by what means, if you're asking me, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This is like 
the first recorded smack talk there is. He's standing before the guys that killed Jesus, and he said, the guy you killed a month ago, it's that guy's name that I healed this guy. Imagine the, the coward that Peter was a month ago. Think about who you were and what, what in your life, what bravery have you gained since the, the last part of March. But the bravery that Peter gains is he's scared of a ten-year-old girl and now he's not scared of the people, the authority and power to put him to death and who just put to death Jesus Christ. The only explanation for that is Peter saw a dead Jesus Christ and Peter saw a resurrected Jesus Christ. And therefore, you can't hurt me. You can't touch me. I saw what you tried to do to my Savior. I saw what you tried to do to the Messiah. And you can't do that to me. It, you, you can't hurt me. And, and the boldness of Peter is profound. And Peter winds up, uh, probably 10 or 20 years later, upside down, crucified. Peter dies for, is a martyr. Point number four. Uh, no other explanation for the growth of the first century church. Um, a lot of times uh, in, in debates, the, when, when you're uh, in an atheist or are, are debating the... The fruit resurrection happens. Point makes, throws it back of the first three church. Tim Keller, his book, Reason for God, says this. It is not enough to simply believe that Jesus did not rise. It's not enough to just believe that. You must then come up with an historical, feasible, alternate explanation for the birth of the church. You have to provide some other plausible account for how things began. You follow what Keller's getting at there. Basically, if, if you're saying the resurrection didn't happen... You have to come up with some reason, some account, that there was this massive explosion of people converting to the faith in this age. Imagine, place yourself in Israel, in, in, in Jerusalem, around the, the resurrection time, and, and place yourself there and understand that the only way for the church to explode the way it exploded was for there to be talk of a resurrection. And Keller's assertion here is that in order for this to have such an explosion, to have all these thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming to faith in Christ, there must have been some truth to the resurrection. Uh, this is a, the book that I got this from, Reason for God. I'm going to leave it up here. If anybody wants to uh, want to put resources in your hands, if anybody wants to, to read this book, take it and, and borrow it for a couple of weeks, it'll be right here. Just let me know or, or just come grab it and tell me you got it. Um, it's a fantastic book filled with, with stuff just like this, but uh, it's, it's, it's really good. Uh, feel free to, to grab it. I want to put three... Ver- or growth of the New Testament church around the resurrection of Christ. This is from Acts chapter 2. So those who received His word, this is Peter preaching one day to a big crowd of people, so those who received His Word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. There's 3,000 people that come to faith in Christ just weeks after the resurrection. has to be some sort of explanation for that. What is that explanation? The burden of proof has to lie with 
the atheist or the non-believer in the resurrection of Christ to somehow prove a way for this to have happened. Acts chapter 4, just another few weeks later, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of, of the men came to about 5,000. So the number of the men, there's probably equally amount the number of women and probably even more children. So 8, 9, 10,000 people came to Christ on this day. We're talking 15,000 people have come to Christ in a matter of a couple of weeks. There has to be some sort of explanation going around because the people around this age would not have been able to have been fooled in such a profound way that they would have been able to, to change the hearts and minds of thousands and thousands of people. And these are just two isolated incidents from one man, Peter. Imagine the, the other 11 disciples that are around the world, around the age, around this area at this time, what conversions they had and the, the stuff that happened for them. There has to be some sort of, of explanation for growth. Um, the, the next point, the worldview of the first century. This is a, a theme and a thought that uh, C.S. Lewis um, penned a phrase called chronological snubbery, or snobbery. Chronological snobbery is a, a thought that he came up with in, uh, in his book, Mere Christianity. And basically, it's because we are in an age that's more enlightened. We, if we would have lived in that age, or if they would have been as enlightened as we are, they would have not have been as fooled. We would not have been fooled if we had lived in that age with oxygen in our minds. There's a, there's a, a whole segment of, of, of intellectuals in this age that, that say those who, who hold to religion and those who hold to the crutch of religion, especially Christianity, and, and we need Christianity to, to hold ourselves up, you are just not as enlightened as we are. And this is the, the understanding of chronological snobbery. We really feel like we are, we are smarter than our dads. And we are smarter than their dads. And generations and generations and generations. And this is 2,000 years ago. So they, they really didn't, they weren't enlightened at all. And now in our age of reason and, and enlightenment, we're really smart and we would have never been fooled by them. N.T. Wright, uh, who is uh, a scholar, uh, an old guy still, um, has, has written this from his book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. I've read pieces of this book and, and just small pieces of it. But highly recommend that you grab this book. Uh, the rest the Son of God. He says this, It is for people to claim that the idea of dying and rising gods was found in religion all over the ancient Near East. Yes, those myths existed. But even if you suppose Jesus' followers knew those pagan legends, which is not all that certain, nobody, even the pagan believed that resurrection happened to individual human beings. You follow that. There is the just talking about area around Jerusalem, the area around Galilee where Jesus taught and Jesus preached and Jesus did his ministry. That's the, what they're talking about. And there are religions around this area. And some of those pagan religions, who the Jews had gods who died and resurrected. None of those religions had individual humans who died and resurrected. That's the, the difference that's here. And the, the other thing that we have to note, and I want to want to read this for you as well. There is not a worldview present that would have easily accepted the assertion that Jesus raised from the dead. I want to tell you what I mean by worldview. Minds, in our age, we have stuff that is a filter by which we see the world. That's worldview. And something, if, in our worldview, 
is, is challenged all the time, but the way we see the world. So the way that these people saw the world is, is where the worldview theme come from. So there is not except for the assertion that Jesus raised from the dead. The prevailing thought of the day that this was would be inconceivable from a worldview perspective, how people saw the world, that some human being could actually rise from the dead. It's inconceivable. And here's the, the thought that, that overwhelms us and, and really brings a highlighter to this point that the worldview of the first century. The We have two makeups of who we are. Soul, spirit is one, and the physical is another. The Greco-Roman thought was that the soul slash spirit was good. The part of you that is soul and spirit was good. The part of you physical that is body is bad. That's the, the prevailing thought of the Greco-Romans in this age. So, not only would a bodily resurrection have been inconceivable, but it would have also been undesirable. If you finally get rid of your physical body, that leaves you with just soul and spirit. So you get rid of the bad and keep the good. This is the same concept that's behind reincarnation. That we're trying to eventually come to complete rest where we have rid ourselves of our body so our soul and our spirit, which is good, can rest. And this is the prevailing worldview of the day. So the people that were, that were Jews, the people that were Christians, the people that, that were in these pagan religions... The prevailing worldview was that we are trying to get rid of our physical bodies. So for somebody to raise from the dead would have been not only inconceivable, but it wouldn't have been a drawing point. Do you see the, the picture there? If you're trying to come up with a mythological, fictional religion, you would have not said that, okay, what's going to happen is our leader is going to die, and then three days after that, we're going to say that he resurrected. Because the people in this day and age would have said, no, thank you. I don't want that. If your leader wants his body back, wants his brokenness back, I don't want to follow that religion. The only way for this to have, to have caught on was for it to have been truth. It's inconceivable and undesirable to not be free from the physical body. Six, the sixth point. The date of the writing of Mark's Gospel. Um, this is, I know I kind of hit you with a deep, confusing one there, but this one is, is also as well. Go slow with me here. It's written in 52. Are conflicted, and historians are conflicted on which, whether Christ died at 34 or 37 AD. Alright? So, either way, it's 15 to 18 years after the resurrection of Christ. Or after the death and resurrection of Christ, then Mark writes his gospel. So, there are most of the people who read, who are reading the book of Mark, were alive and thinking human beings when Christ supposedly resurrected. Alright? You follow that? Most of the people who were alive and reading Mark were witnesses to what was happening. So Mark could not have written lies about him without being exposed. Now, here is uh, some strength, some pillars of support for the book of Mark. Um, ancient books, when they are tested historically, 
It's called histo- historical criticism. When, when books are tested historically through historical criticism, they put them through two tests that these last three points here talk about. The number of copies that are available of, of the actual book. There are more than 20,000 copies in the world today of the book of Mark. And the more copies that are there, the more that they are alike, the more likely this is exactly what Mark wrote. You follow that? If we have three copies, and they're all three different, they all three don't say the same things, I don't believe, I, I can't be, be trusting which one of these three is exactly what Mark wrote. You follow that? We have 20,000 copies of what Mark wrote. And they are all similar. They all are alike. And they all teach the same thing. And there are less than 100 copies of the writings of Aristotle and Homer. I had to read the Odyssey in college by Homer, and there's less than 100 copies available today of what Homer wrote. So we can't... Historical criticism, This is and this is not a Christian thing, this is anything, any ancient writings, these are the, the things, that, the test that they put these things up to to see whether or not we should believe that what they wrote was actually what they wrote. Alright? And we all accept the writings of Aristotle, we all accept the writings of Homer. It's the book Mark and the, the scripture writings that we're a little bit fuzzy on and and the atheist or the Christian believes or doesn't believe, and, and there's argument as to whether or not this is what actually wrote. But put up to the test that historians put up to, this, by 200 times, Mark outweighs Aristotle and Homer. And then the last thing there. These writings are the same from region to region. And it's, it's understandable that one set of lies or one set of myths could have come up from the region of Galilee, let's say. But there's also that those same set of of myths or fiction that come up from the region of Idumea or come up from the region of Rome or come up from the region of Corinth and all these different uh, ancient Near East cities and they're all the same. Of those 20,000 copies are spread out all over Asia and all over Europe of the Gospels of Mark. So the same lies are are popping up all over the place. If these are lies, they're the same lies all over the place. And this is a, a historical uh, predation for book of Mark. This is exactly what Mark wrote. So what we have in our Bibles as that we attribute to Mark is actually what he wrote. So if that's true, if this is what Mark wrote, and he wrote it 15 years after Christ died and resurrected, there's got to be some truth to what he was saying because they wouldn't have all these copies of what they all knew to be a lie. Finally, number seven, the last one. 1 Corinthians 15 three through four is simply a creed. There are creeds, uh, the, the more uh, traditional churches, the more um, uh, your Catholic, your Methodist churches will stand up and read and speak creeds each and every Sunday. Each and every time they gather for worship together corporately, they'll read a creed. First Corinthians chapter 15 is a creed that was written and learned and spoken by Christians in the, the immediate days following the resurrection, probably all those people, those 5,000 men that we read about in Acts and those 3,000 uh, all people in the, in the second chapter of Acts that we read about, probably they were taught and memorized this very creed days after the resurrection. It is celebrated here by Paul some 15 to 20 years after the resurrection. It says this. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. Paul speaking. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also 
receive. He's speaking. This is a creed that I somebody told me, and I'm telling you. And creeds were were essential in this age to continue because most people could read, most people could write. There's no way to communicate other important truths other than by creeds. And every Christian who, when they came to Christ, now. You know, my, my daughter came to Christ uh, about a year and a half ago, and so I gave her a, a brand new Bible, and I read it to her all the time. Instead of giving Bibles to people, they would give creeds to people. And this is one of those creeds that started immediately after the resurrection, and now 15 years has come so part of the vernacular, so part of the Christian world, that it creeped and shipped up and chapter 15. And it says this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul himself, the writer of this book, writing this creed that somebody told him, somebody told him, and now he's telling these people in Corinth, the writer of this book would have seen the dead and resurrected Jesus Christ. And his fame and, and support and, and people gathered around him would have never happened had he not seen a dead Jesus and a resurrected Jesus. This is another example of the proof of the resurrection. Uh, and I want to I want to close with uh, just the, the this prevailing thought. And and I know that we've uh, talked a lot intellectually tonight and, and thinking with you. But the fact of the matter is, just like Dave said when he welcomed us tonight, it's essential for us to connect with the importance of what today is. And the purpose of, of all of these seven proofs of, of the resurrection is just to, to further connect our minds with the brilliance of what happened on that day. So we're going to transition a little bit into response time. I know I've been connecting with your minds, and now I want to hopefully we, we will connect with our hearts here and we'll stand up and celebrate the truth that we've just learned about. So let's pray.